Welcome back to the Scottish Indie Music Podcast with Gareth Perry and Finlay MacDonald. In episode four, we discussed some of our favourite nonsense lyrics, from the bizarre and the genius to the simply incorrect. We also came up with a few of our own inspirational moments in music, which included songs, albums, and chance encounters aided by MySpace. So you quite good at freestyle rapping then? Under normal circumstances. <laughs> so Finlay, first of all today, I had a little message from you yesterday morning and you'd heard a particular song on the radio that had a certain lyric that either didn't make sense in it. So maybe you could tell us the song. And I was just idly in the car listening and the year 3000 by Busted came on. But if you don't remember the, the song, it goes like, I've been to the year 3000 and your great, great, great granddaughter is pretty fine. Okay. And it just sort of crossed my mind like, hang on, great, great, great granddaughter would only take you to about 2080, you know, that's like three generations away. And I actually worked it out to get to the year 3000. In terms of generations, you'd have to have 50 generations down the line if it was going to make sense. It got me into the idea, like, let's look at other lyrics. And there are are quite a few really daft lyrics that are just in there because they rhyme or something. But uh, (laughs) but there's quite a lot of daft ones. And then, of course, we opened it up to our audience on Facebook and we got some quite good responses, didn't we? Yeah, just first on the busted one, I think you've sort of mistaken what they meant by fine. They actually meant they, that she just broken down over 900 years so much that her <laughs> math was fine. Brilliant. Of course that's what they meant. It's all about quantum physics and stuff. Well, well, we go with some of the Facebook suggestions first just to see what came yeah. up. because You could take this a number of ways. Like you've said something that factually it doesn't make sense. Whereas you could also have words that are just used completely wrong in a sentence. Well, that's, that was more the kind of thing I was thinking of. But just things that are completely wrong. If you're going to go for like words that don't make sense, like most of the great songs in the world that have ever been written don't make a lot of sense. I mean, some people come up with some examples of things like Wire and, and, and uh, there was Michael Stipe come up. These are great writers, you know, they don't make sense as such. There's, there's kind of good nonsense and there's kind of rubbish nonsense, isn't there? And yeah. like Bob Dylan, for example, side two of um, Bringing It All Back Home, you've got like Mr. Tambourine Man, The Gates of Eden. It's all right now, baby boy. That whole side is just completely, it's really hard to work out any kind of sense from the lyrics, but they affect you in a quite a deep way and they're brilliant. They're absolutely right. But there's the other kind of nonsense, which is just like actual nonsense. (laughs) And we got some good examples. I thought Paul Mellon's one was a great one. It's not a lyric as such. It's a a title, Standing on the Shoulder of Giants by Oasis. (laughs) <laughs> when you think about it, and I hadn't actually thought about it. I love that as a quote, which Kenny Brown highlighted to us all that it originally came from Sir Isaac Newton, 
said, if I have seen further, it's because I was standing on the shoulders of giants. That's just such a great quote. I love that. And it makes complete sense. But when you think about Oasis's version, standing on the shoulder of giants, <laughs> I thought that was a great one. I had noticed actually on the side of a two-pin coin, I think somebody mentioned that on Facebook as well, but I think those two things came around at about the same time, the two-pound coin and that Oasis album. And I remember somebody pointing that out as well at the time. So does the two-pound coin miss out the S? I do not know, actually. And I wonder if there's another reason why Oasis did it. I was trying to work that out. How did it come about? The only thing I could come up with was that they were so big at the time that nobody in the record company or the press office or anything had the balls to just say to them, like, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> That's wrong. That's not with the quote. You know, so people are like, oh, Liam and Noel, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, just go for it, you know. I don't know. If it's the Royal Mint that made the mistake, then I don't know, that'd be quite embarrassing as well, wouldn't it? Yeah, I'd expect that one's correct. Like, it's got the S. You would have thought. Yeah, unless the, the font size that they could fit on the side of a two-pound coin was as such that they had to drop one of the letters and they thought yeah. the only one that they could get away with was the S at the end of shoulders. Conceivably a giant with one shoulder, <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> there was a few other good ones come up. Kenny Brown then come up with the idea that with it following on from the kind of daft lyric thing, Phil okay, and I didn't know this, the lyric from Being Boiled is about, but he thought that silk worms had to be boiled in order to make silk. Now, apparently they don't. I mean, I don't know what either, <laughs> but he was convinced that this was, and that's why he wrote a whole song about it. Being boiled alive for God's stocking is the lyric, apparently. He admits himself now that, he, that they don't. Yeah. Do you know, I like that even more, though, because he believed this. It stuck with him so much. Like that's one of those things that you would have heard as a child and just always believed was true. Like wow. my mum told me when I was wee that the, the spider that lives in the banana tree lays its eggs at the end of the spider at the end of the banana. To this day, I still chop the ends off bananas by a force of habit and don't eat them. Well, I mean, I completely understand that. I mean, <laughs> if my mum had told me that when I was a kid, I would be. I don't know if I'd ever eat a banana, to be honest. What was she thinking? Usually you want to get your kids to eat fruit and things like that, and it's quite... (laughs) What was her thought process and seeing that to you? Yeah, maybe I was just eating so many bananas that she was worried I was going to poison myself. The opposite, yeah. What is it, the same bananas? Is it potassium? You could overdose on potassium. (laughs) I'm sure there are other things in it as well. I wonder if it came from something that he had heard as a child. Yeah, possibly. Possibly he was convinced about it. Maybe it's like, you know, we were talking about a few weeks ago, the, the writing process, uh, lyrics, kind of, I think for both of us, kind of come last. And I think that's a good way to do it. And, and and maybe that was it. He just didn't give it too much thought. I think most of these kind of daft lyrics are probably just come from not really thinking about it too much. Mm-hmm. You know, and just like, oh, that sounds all right. That rhymes. That'll do it. <laughs> no. It's a bit unusual. Yeah, it's a, it sounds a bit daft. It'll get yeah. people talking, you know, that kind of... Well, the famous one, Killer Queen by Queen, uh, where it goes, gunpowder, gelatine, dynamite with a laser beam. Now, gelatine is the ingredient 
that is used to set jelly. What he was probably getting at was gel ignite, which yeah. ties in with gunpowder and dynamite and all that, because that's what's used for explosives. But but that doesn't rhyme. Now, thinking this through, I was thinking, you know, Queen were all highly educated, smart guys. I think one of them would have said to Freddie, you know, that doesn't make sense. It's gel ignite. I bet Freddie just kind of went like, it rhymes, darling. It's going in, you know, <laughs> something like that. that. That's what I like to, that's how I like to fantasize it, you know. Yeah. And another famous one is Thin Lizzy Jailbreak. Tonight there's going to be a jailbreak somewhere in this town. Well, yeah. presumably it'll be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know. That's a good one, yeah. That's Matthew, Queen, Thin Lizzy and Busted. Did you have any daft lyrics that, you, that had occurred to you? Yeah, well, there's, there's actually uh, a misheard lyric is one of the ones that sprung to mind, which was there was a, a dance song in the 90s by a group called Gala, and it was Freed from Desire. Do you know oh, that yeah. one that's like, there was this line in it that was, my baby's got no money, he's got something, something, something. I don't know if it was the girl's accent or something, but none of us... It, when I was at school, could figure this out, what it was. Oh. And it was like a big thing. And I think it was actually across the, the nation was a big thing. It was the days before you could just go online and get the lyrics to a song. Yeah, You sort of had to wait till they were printed in smash hits or something yeah. like that until you could find them. And it might have been that magazine, actually, that they used it to sell copies because mm-hmm. they were almost like every week promising that they were going to print the lyrics to this song. So that oh. the great mystery of what this last line was okay be revealed and it sounded to us like my baby's got no money he's got his trampoline it's something to do with a trumpet it sounded a bit like that sort of thing uh-huh. i thought i knew what the line was but i can't remember what i thought it was now the actual line is my baby's got no money he's got his strong beliefs i think i knew that actually i think that's what i heard it as right because I remember I heard it not that long ago and thinking about, I was actually visualising who this guy could be. I, I visualised this complete stoner. I, he went on evangelically, going on about uh, his religion or something like that, or his, his strong beliefs, kipping on everybody's floor. Well, to convince everybody to kind of freeload his way around the whole of the... I've met people like that. Whereas I was picturing him on a trampoline or the other one I thought he's got, he's got his trump at least. <laughs> he's got no money, but he's got his trump at least. So that's how he's... <laughs> Misheard lyrics, I think, is another podcast in itself because I've got a yeah. few of them as well. Speaking about Michael Stipe, I remember another one that I could never quite figure out. I don't even know what it is now. Is the Sidewinder Sleeps Tonight, that uh-huh. chorus? Well, I think I know the lyric. Do you want me to actually just blow it all open for you? Or do you want to to remain a mystery? No, no, please tell me. (laughs) Don't you try to wake him. The sidewinder. Yeah. Don't you try to wake or don't you try to wake him up? That's what it is. And going back to Queen, when I was a kid, I thought the lyrics to Bohemian Rhapsody was Spare him his life for his wife's sausages. Spare him his life for his wife's sausages. 
And I've got another nonsense one here, which is a song by the Red Hot Chili Peppers called Give It Away, mm-hmm. which you might remember. But an example verse would be, realise I don't want to be a miser, confide with sly, you'll be the wiser. Young blood is the loving upriser. How come everybody want to keep it like the Kaiser? That sounds like a prime example of what we're kind of getting at here. Just absolute nonsense. <laughs> yeah, I remember using this in a, an argument at school against a girl who, at the age of like 14 or whatever it was, she, she knew all there was to know. And she was slagging me off because I liked the Beatles. And she was trying to convince me that the, the Red Hot Chili Peppers were better than the Beatles. And... This was one of my arguments against the Red Hot Chili Peppers was this song. Strong argument against that notion. Yeah. Although she came back with I Am The Walrus, so she actually won the argument, I guess. I actually still sing that song, the Give It Away one now and again, because I have this game at home where she can make the TV go onto YouTube from my phone. Mm. And so occasionally I'll just chuck that song on and then go in and do a freestyle rap over the top, which is every bit as credible as the real thing. I think. Wow. There's one more uh, nonsense lyric that Paul Johnson brought up on Facebook, and it was uh, Nick Kershaw, The Riddle, which I thought this is brilliant because somebody I know did it at karaoke at our house recently, and it really came home to me just how nonsense it is. The chorus goes, Near a tree by a river, there's a hole in the ground where an old man of Aaron goes around and around. And his mind is a beacon in the veil of the night. For a strange kind of fashion, there's a wrong and a right. But he'll never, never fight over you. Nick gives it a complete deadpan, really straight performance in the video. It's worth a watch. Such a really nice melody, that, though. It's a very catchy melody, isn't it? You can see why it was such a big hit. Nobody was caring about the lyrics too much, I don't think. And that all came from you listening to your Busted album yesterday morning. (laughs) Accidentally hearing it on the radio. Whatever. (laughs) Did you not say you were forced to go and see them live? Uh, That was McFly, so Ah, very similar. Shall we move on, then, to something else we were going to talk about? Like I said to you, I remember at the very, very start of the initial lockdown period last year when people were sort of finding different ways to fill their time, there was a lot of these social media top 10 things that people were posting up on Facebook. Things just like favourite songs, favourite albums, but then there was one I thought was quite good that was like the top 10 most influential records. Mm -hmm. So things that changed your outlook, your approach, your listening habits. And I thought about that from our point of view. We'll do maybe not 10, but we'll do five. It could be anything, songs, albums, happenings, uh-huh. anything like that, that just had a little influence on you, that changed your way of thinking or made you aware of something at a certain time in your life. Yeah, and kind of like made you the kind of musician, writer that you kind of are, that kind of thing. Yeah, uh-huh. I've got five here that sort of go chronologically from very, very early childhood to I actually go up to when I was about 19 or 20. So very, very early memory of like, I must have been about three or something and had this guitar. The song that had obviously caught my ear as a very small child was Right Said Fred's Deeply Dippy. 
Right, and, yeah. <laughs> and I used to pick up the guitar and just, as kids do, just smash it and sing this song. So the very first song I ever played was uh, Deeply Dippy. Deeply Dippy about the way you walk. And they remain the biggest influence on me to this day. I think you've got a certain element of humour about your music, which I think is a really good thing. Right, said Fred are quite a kind of humorous band. Kind of good way, I think, you know. But they're a bit of a novelty, but not like completely a novelty, you know. There must have been something about that, though. I don't know, maybe just because it was an acoustic guitar. Because I had an acoustic guitar, I sort of thought I can play that. Mm. It's the first time I remember having any urge to play a musical instrument. Yeah, yeah. And it's quite a simple one as well, isn't it? Yeah, like four chords or something like that. I couldn't play the chords, like, but I let the listener use their imagination. A highly expressive interpretation of it. Yeah, very avant-garde. Yeah, yeah. Mine was about similar age. I was six years old, thereabouts, and this Bohemian Rhapsody came out in the charts. End of 75, probably. So that was my kind of musical awakening, really. Because um, I suddenly became aware of pop music and Top of the Pops because they, that was on every week of Top of the Pops and it became a very exciting event. And just that video, like, you know, it's so dramatic, you know, and the song itself was so dramatic. And that started me on a journey through a good few years of my childhood, being like obsessed with Queen and all their albums and all that kind of thing. And me, my big brothers and all that, and they, they were all into music. My sister was into Bowie. My mum was a singer, she sang folk music, she sang classical, and she had Radio 3 on all the time. So I think with the influence of my big brothers being into rock, like Sabbath and all that, and my mum playing Radio 3, if you kind of meld them together, you kind of get Queen. So that's why, I think that's why it, 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 it totally appealed to me, you know. Oh, that's cool. I, d- I actually remember being aware of that song because of Wayne's World, probably about a similar age to you, you when you first heard it. Aye. And oh, yeah, yeah. used to uh-huh. do that kind of head banging at the end. But, right. um, just recently with that song, I noticed how simple it is. And I don't mean that in terms of the whole arrangement, like it's it's amazing, but in terms of the instrumentation that's used in it, mm-hmm. because it is just a rock band. Mm-hmm. You sort of imagine in your head that it's got all this orchestration and stuff on it, but that's a very good it's point. just a rock you band. talk about the, the operatic section and stuff in the middle, but all that is is really voices. It's not. Yeah, it's um, just voices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You imagine that there's timpani and the strings and everything going on, but there's nothing like that. That's a good point. Yeah. I've never actually realised that <laughs> in all these years. <laughs> I've got a good story about how when I was uh, recording with Teenage Fan Club, the very last uh, big recording session I was involved in down in Rockfield in, in Wales, uh, where they recorded, where Queen recorded Bohemian Rhapsody. It's a kind of poignant moment for me because I, I realised I was going to have to have a bit of a career change and sort of um, get a job, basically. So I sent off my CV and I wrote my CV in this little room, uh, which was an old stable. And it's where Freddie wrote Bohemian Rhapsody, or at least finished most of the song, because he disappeared for about two weeks uh, when they were recording there in that little room. I, would, I don't know if it has any significance whatsoever. but Brilliant. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Ah, amazing. So... I'll go on to my second one now, which is verging into maybe guilty pleasure territory here, but it was about the year 2000. 
just as you were making the first draft of your letter in Freddie Mercury's stable room. Exactly. I hadn't even started playing piano yet at that point. I don't come from a very musical family. They like listen to music, but have never really played anything. I think I think the guitar was my mum's actually, but it had sat in a corner for 20 years or something. Mm-hmm. And my dad occasionally played a song on it. I remember it was around the time when all those kind of talent shows were starting on TV. Oh yeah, The X Factor and were the ones before that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'd sort of got out the habit of listening to radio as much as I did when I was younger at that point. So I used to know the top 40, like off by heart. And then I kept hearing this wee piano tune mm-hmm. over all these things. I think it was the one with Mylene Class. What band was she in again? Was she Hearsay or something like that? I think it was Hearsay, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Pop Idol or Pop Stars or something like that. Yeah, it was, I think it was Pop Stars. She kept playing it as well. I didn't actually know what it was. I could maybe play a little bit of it for you. First song I ever learned on the piano. Brilliant. It's Coldplay. Ah, it's Coldplay. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was, yeah. And it was their first ever single. And I kept hearing them playing that. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, I want to learn how to play that. It's, it's a beautiful piece of music. Yeah. I think it's probably still about the best, their best song. I mean, I don't really listen to their newer stuff because mm. I know everybody says it, but it is very kind of same these it's days. Funny, but... You know, Coldplay are one of these ones that you're not allowed to like, really, are you? They're like a bit like you too. It's because they're so big that's part of the issue, probably, and then automatically you know they, they become not cool. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I had a keyboard that had been my brother's, but again, it was just sitting there for for years. My friend had a proper upright piano, and he also had the book of music for that song. Mm-hmm. And so that was the first time it kind of trying to figure out where the notes were on the music and everything as well. Mostly just wrote them in. Like it, it was one of those things where it was a very, very late start because mm. I think I was the, the youngest of four and I think they'd maybe sort of given up on having any musical kids in the family by that time. Mm. But luckily this Casio keyboard was lying around. I was able to slowly make sense of... Yeah, but that, that's amazing. So you, yeah, from what you said, that, 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 that you didn't really come from a very musical family but you picked that up and just learned it which is pretty amazing and of course that would be a major turning point in your your life you know the awakening to being able to play music funnily enough the whole idea of coming from a musical family I find interesting because I did come from a musical family my mum not my dad but my mum and all my brothers and sisters were just music around the whole time Jimmy Page did not come from a musical family. He didn't, there was no music in his family whatsoever. In fact, he accidentally learned the guitar because somebody had left the guitar in the house that they moved into. <laughs> and it was just lying there. And he went, oh, well, I'll, I'll have a go on that. There was nobody in his family who thought, oh, you should, you should try this or whatever. Yeah. And it was just purely by accident. And that was Jimmy Page. Yeah. <laughs> Saying that, right, the only reason I really can play guitar is because when I was at uni, so I'm talking at the age of 19 here, was, mm-hmm. I sort of played a few chords but didn't really know how to play it. We had so much time on our hands and I lived in a halls of residence and on my floor, the nine other people that were on my floor played guitar. Mm-hmm. So there was always a guitar lying around. Mm-hmm. 
every one of them sort of had a different style of playing. And I would yeah. learn how to do like a Pink Floyd solo from one person. I would learn how to do a, a kind of bluesy slide song from somebody else. It's probably from that year is the only reason I could really say that I learned guitar because I might not have bothered otherwise. I, I often think having big brothers who were a strong influence on me at a young age came as a hindrance in a way because you it, it's harder to find your own way. Whereas if you don't have that influence, like you, you just found a bunch of guys that could play all in different styles and you just found your own way a lot sooner, I would have thought, you know? Mm-hmm. If it wasn't for my brother having had having been obsessed with Jean-Michel Jarre in the 80s, that keyboard would never have been there. So like, okay. if it wasn't there, and if I'd never watched pop stars either, I would never have heard Trouble by Coldplay. It wasn't <laughs> even Coldplay's version. It yeah, Mylene Class. I owe it all to Mylene Class, Coldplay and Jean-Michel Jarre. <laughs> well, that, no, that explains a lot. So okay. um, will I do my next one? Stiff Little Fingers was a, another big watershed moment for me when I was 13. And I'd been to gigs in the Glasgow Apollo. I'd seen some rock bands. I'd seen Bob Dylan, actually, in Earl's Court, Rory Gallagher, and a few things like that. But I'd started to get into punk rock. It was way after punk was finished, really, but I grew up in Twecker. And, you know, you just... Things come to you when you're ready for them, don't, don't they? And I was 13 and punk rock, it was the time when hormones were going crazy and that was what I had to have in my life and that's when I got it. I got into Sif Little Fingers, got uh, an album and I went to see their, what was maybe the last gig at Glasgow Apollo. Turned out, of course, it wasn't. They reformed a few years later. But it was absolutely mind-blowing. They opened up with Suspect of Ice, which is their, probably their most visceral song. It was their first single. That venue as well, Glasgow Apollo, was a really special venue because it had a great sound. There was no bar, so everybody was always focused on the music. And um, it was also an old cinema, which still had the cinema seats, the huge cinema which soaked up a lot of that excess noise that you, you know, bass and stuff that you get in places like the, the Academy, the O2 Academy. I said, it's not a very good sound in that place because it's so cavernous. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the Apollo didn't have that problem because it was just, it was a huge venue, but it was, the music was visceral and in your face as well. So it was a great combination. So the atmosphere was amazing. That's why people go on about it so much. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, Stiff Little Fingers opening with uh, Suspect Bass, that, that was the start of my journey. That was when I discovered punk rock and everything changed for me then, you know. So that's my that was my next one. Yeah, great. Aye, next one. Definitely that kind of live thing when you see something like that for the first time and it takes it to a whole other level for you. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. very exciting. Well, especially when there's noisy guitars involved, you know. Yeah. Somebody had a big effect. I think when I was maybe about 13 or 14 again, me and my friend listened to Sgt. Pepper's first time. And I'd obviously had the Beatles around me. My mum and dad are Beatles fans. They would have played their songs in the house. Mm-hmm. I remember hearing that. And I don't know something about it. It was just perfect the first time I heard it. Like, I think I would have loved it anyway. Mm-hmm. But it was just the day it was and where we were and who I was with. Mm-hmm. It was just a nice, chilled, sunny summer's day. I can imagine that being an amazing experience. It's one that I didn't really have because 
I didn't listen to Sergeant Peppers really until only a few years ago. And it was partly because, like, I thought it was overhyped, you know, because yeah. everybody went on about how it was the most amazing album ever. I just didn't want to listen to it. And then a few <laughs> years ago, I, I did, and I was like, oh, my God. I now I know why everybody goes on about it, because it's just phenomenal. I kind of slightly envious of that experience, you know, of hearing it in these circumstances that you've just described. Right? I, I wouldn't say it's my favourite Beatles album now, but on first listen, it's still the one I've enjoyed the most. Like, you don't get that that often, the first listening and everything's perfect. And it was just as it, like, that was the perfect moment to hear it for the first time. It's an evocative album and it's in a particularly beautiful kind of setting that you've heard it, you know, you, yeah. you never ever forget that. Yeah, and me and my friend, I don't think we said a word to each other for the 40, 50 minutes it was on. Then I stopped playing Trouble by Coldplay and it was pretty much McCartney songs from mm-hmm. to this day. Yeah. So I'd say like obviously that other song got me started and made me want to start playing, but it was really the Beatles that actually learned how to play the instrument too. Yeah. I always think the Beatles are, are a great way to learn music. You can learn everything you need to know about music through the Beatles. You think about all the influences they had, they, they kind of incorporated everything. So a few years later, aged... 18, I discovered Scott Walker, and he was introduced to me by my friend who is actually called Scott Walker, believe it or not. We formed our first band and we had a kind of musical partnership for a good few years after that. That was a kind of big life changer for me just because it's just kind of mind-blowing because of the the orchestral arrangements going on, the the poetry and his lyrics and everything. It was just one of these kind of turning points. It's always influenced everything I've done since. Trouble is, it's hard to be influenced by Scott Walker because nobody can ever come close <laughs> to singing like him, you know what I mean? It's uh, plenty I've tried. It's better to be influenced by somebody who's not a very good singer. And then, you, know, <laughs> you can maybe pull something like that off, you know, give it your own twist. I've heard you say that before. I think you're a bit harsh on yourself. Ah. You can see the influence in Scott Walker and you. Mark Almond was really influenced by Scott Walker, so was um, Julian Cope. They don't sound like him, you know, they just sound like themselves. I suppose it's a bit like that, really, isn't it? The influence is there, but it doesn't mean you're trying to be that level or whatever, you know. There's worse people to be influenced by, though. Exactly, that's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Funnily enough, the older they I get, the more I appreciate his later stuff. I didn't really get Climate the Hunter just after it came out when I kind of got into him and I really like it now and then something like Tilt I just didn't get it when it came out and now I actually quite like it you know yeah I mean the golden sort of period for me is his sort of Phillips Scott 3 for me is like when he just hit the exact right sweet spot I think between between the avant-garde and the melodic and we had sort of moved into pushing the boundaries a bit more, you know. So I'll give you my other Sgt Pepper moment very quickly. Burt Bacharach at the Electric Proms 2007 or 8, and it was in the days of the red button on BBC. They would show just on a loop the artists playing at it for a couple of days. And I remember just sitting with my mum watching Burt Bacharach and he did a sort of medley of, started with Wives and Lovers into Alfie, and then finished with a house is not a home. And it goes on for about 10, 11 minutes. 
mild orchestration, just the odd string line coming in now and again, the odd trumpet, mostly just part on the piano. And it goes on like that for about nine minutes. And then it, at the end of the house is not home, it just takes off and it just keeps going and going and going and going. You just can't think it can go any higher. Yeah, yeah. And it just keeps going. It's absolutely perfect. Did he have a real string section at that? Yeah, I think he had the, the full orchestra, as far as I remember. Amazing. I have seen him do that a couple of times with yeah. the orchestra. That time I saw it when I wasn't expecting it. Yeah. Even my mum, yeah. who was still just reading their magazine, was like yeah. looking up the, on the mic. Wow, that is it's incredible. And I just remember trying not to cry at the time. It was that yeah. great. So how does it go at the end of that again? I'm not meant to do it yeah, at that point it's still going for it, but right, right, right. Oh, it's incredible. If you need to, see, I think they call it the movie medley. So if you look at it on on YouTube, it is absolutely right. amazing. It's so cool. Right. Okay, well, um, I don't know if I want to mention this way. I should because yeah, Big Star were a big influence on me just right after Scott Walker. I, everything changed again when I heard Big Star. And it's funny because when we had Jason on, he knew Alex Chilton really well. We got to know him really well. And Alex Chilton himself said that Big Star weren't as good as people thought they were. And I agree now, you know, it's, it, it, they, weren't, they weren't as good. But at that age, they were kind of mind-blowing for me. They really did kind of change my whole outlook in life. And it was his, his guitar style and everything, what he could do with uh, chords on a guitar and things like that as well. I don't know, there was something really magical about them. Can I skip to my next one? Because I think we talked a lot about Big Star before, and yeah, also there's not that much to say about them. <laughs> um, but my last one would be Stereo Lab, probably in my mid-20s. I got into them early 20s when the French disco came out, and I've always loved them since. And that's what set me off on the path that I got into with music and movement, which is more kind of electronic and more, um, I suppose, to use that kraut rock word, and also what I'm doing now with Workspace. So that side of my musical influence came from Stereolab. They were a kind of mind-blowing thing, I think, because of the way that they were so eclectic and they managed to just take so many influences and make a kind of a, what seemed like a completely new music. There wasn't a lot going on in the 90s that I thought was new. Most of Britpop was a rehash of the 60s and 70s. And they seemed to create the nearest thing I can think of from that era to something really genuinely new, you know. And even though they were drawing from the past a lot, they so many things going into combined together. And we have performed French disco before together. We did, uh-huh, with Lindsay Moss, which was Paul's idea, which I think it was a great idea because doing it in a sort of crooner type of way gave it a different angle, didn't it? Yeah, there's a video of that on YouTube where I totally ran out of ideas. I'd used <laughs> all my ideas, <laughs> just at one point looking at Paul. <laughs> People that saw it seemed to really, really like it, you know? Yeah, no, it was good fun to play, really cool. Yeah, I think yeah. on that keyboard of yours as well, it's, it's got a great sound for it, for the, mm-hmm. the organ. I, Mm. It was really fun playing it in that one. And Andy and Nicky, I thought, were great in nailing the rhythm section of that one. They totally nailed it, which was, I think, what made it fun to play. Yeah. 
probably the most influential moment for me was one of the first nights I was at uni. I remember it was the time of MySpace, like that was the big thing at the time. And it used to kind of put your friends as a sort of top Eight. I never eight. really liked doing so that. You started off with four, and then you could have eight, and then you could extend it to sixteen or something. And I never liked rating my friends, so I just used to put my favourite bands in it. It was a victory for the Comic Muse by the Divine Comedy came out, and I was in a car with my dad and my brother on the autobahn between Munich and Nuremberg, listening to it for the first time as I was sort of drifting off. That was maybe another one of those perfect. Yeah. hearing this album for the first time but then yeah. uh, so I had Divine Comedy in my top friends on MySpace at that point and this young chap who'd had a few too many drinks already I think before they'd even gone out got very excited that I had Divine Comedy as one of my top friends on MySpace later that evening when they were coming back from going out the same young chap started singing Gin Soaked Boy at the top of his voice to me <laughs> ba 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 da. Ba, 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 da. Maybe the next day I got talking to him, and that was uh, that was how I met uh, Adam Ross, who mm-hmm. basically for the next few years of my life I played music with, performed with, wrote with, recorded with. It was the starting point of actually really playing in bands for me and performing, learning how to do everything. Not only play guitar, learn how to record. When then they started what happened for real, basically. Yeah. That's it. I think I remember you talking about a song that you bonded with Adam over, and I think you and I kind of bonded over it as well. A lady of a certain age. Incredible. That's really great. Hi. That also features the name of my band, The Smart Set. That's kind of where it came from as well. Where you got, where you got the name, of course. Yeah. That can Aye, be beautiful the song, though. Part of the Smart Set. Holiday begins, dined out with stars. Oh, it's just incredible. The lyrics are just, every line just hits you. And again, he manages to rhyme all the way through it as well, doesn't he? He is a bit of a master of a rhyming couplet, Neil Hannon. And we had the famous line about the, your arse is the size of a small country. Yeah, he, he's one of my favourites as well, but obviously very influenced by Scott Walker as well and has gone for the same vocal style. He's gone for it and made a quite a good job of having a go at it as well, yeah. In fact, just coming back to that, uh, that one of the great quotes that we talked about at the start about standing on the shoulder of giants. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? People are cool with that because, you know, you, you've got to start somewhere, haven't you? You might as well start with something great. Does he still use a band or is it just on his own now? I think he's had the same band for a wee while. He did do a tour where he was just solo. A very good pianist as well, actually. You've inspired me to listen to him uh, more now. I need to catch up with some of his more recent work because I'm sure it's very good. Did I ever tell you I met him? And no. this is one of my good stories, actually. <laughs> it was not long before that, Lady of a Certain Age time. I was still playing the Teenage Fan Club occasionally and we were asked to play at the wedding of Kelly MacDonald and Doogie Payne from Travis. And then for the rest of the night, we're up in Argyle in the middle of a castle in the middle of nowhere. And I didn't know anybody and I, and I kind of got a bit drunk. And then he was just sitting on his own, Neil Hannon, at a table. So I went, I'm just going to go down and talk to him. And I was like, said, said the usual kind of 
idiotic things like, oh, I really love that album, oh, Casanova, it's brilliant, that kind of thing, you know, fanboy stuff. And he went, I've made about six albums since then. <laughs> <laughs> and then he said, um, have you got a cigarette? <laughs> and, and I felt as if, like, oh, no, man, I've, I've I managed to bore him to tears so much I've driven him back to smoking. He's probably like years ago or something. Yeah. You should have just said that, but the six from then have been crap. (laughs) (laughs) I've often thought about saying, I wish I'd said that. (laughs) Because it is a bit of an arsy thing to say, really. But at the same time, uh, if I was going to be a fanboy, I should have uh, at least known that he'd made about five albums or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Good stuff. So, will we go for some questions then? I've got three. Yeah, I've got three as well. Do you want to fire a number at me then? Number two. Number two. Okay. Been watching anything decent on the telly? (laughs) I'm looking forward to the new series of Handmaid's Tale coming on. I think it's at the end of April. Hmm. It's probably the last show that that's really caught me. We're a bit late to it, so only really finished watching it maybe in the autumn last year. So I've not had to wait too long to get the next series. I know I lost track with it a wee bit, but and the first one was amazing. Everywhere you look, I just keep thinking, oh my God, it's a handmaid's tale, you know. It's, it's, <laughs> I mean, everywhere in the world, something from that does happen. Yeah. But also, it's terrifying how it's starting to happen here as well. <laughs> <laughs> I watched Phoenix Nights for the first time recently, and it's great. Really yeah. good. Um, I, I watched that bit at the time, but um, is it yeah? Is it worth another go? Yeah. I think it was actually better for me watching it now than when it first came out. I think I appreciated it more now than mm. I would have done. But in terms of hard-hitting drama, The Handmaid's Tale was the, the last one that, that really caught me. What about you? Throughout the winter, I've been watching a lot of really old, not really old, but 70s horror films. And then I got into sort of like your hammer horrors, but more the amicus horrors, the portmanteau horrors. Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee and all these, Joan Collins and all these kind of actors. And then I got into the dramas of the 70s, like Thriller, Brian Clemens' Thriller, which I vaguely remembered as a kid. They're about an hour long, and in some ways they're very dated, you know. A lot of these things, it's very much of its time. But the stories are great, and the actors are great, and the soundtracks are great. The composers that worked on these, you know, it was all real orchestra stuff. There wasn't any sense really in, in TV shows then or anything like that. It's a good way to unwind at night, watch a 70s thriller or Tales of the Unexpected, that's that kind of thing as well. There's loads of great actors like Denim Elliott, Anthony Valentine, they're all there, you know. Do you know another one I actually just remembered? They've put the original Muppets up on Disney+, Plus, the, the original five series. So we've been working oh. our way through that. And Oh, brilliant. I didn't know the Muppets were on that. That is fantastic. That's yeah. one to watch. Uh, there was one where they had Charles Aznavour singing Inchworm. I've noticed it on YouTube, I haven't watched it, but that must be amazing because it's a great song. It was so great. And just even the little inchworm that they had 
on his hand and, and the chorus of the kids in a school but it was like silhouetted into a building it was just beautiful it was amazing it was essential viewing every week when I was a kid so I'm glad you brought that up because I'm definitely going to get into that the, one of the great things about the 70s is it was all real instruments all orchestrated music in the background all the time and really clever orchestrations you know it wasn't just like we'll just knock this out it was like they really put a lot of thought into it, you know. It's yeah, just the jokes as well. It's just constantly funny. It's just like one-liners. One-liners, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you fired a number at me. I'm going to fire a number at you. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay, let's go for number two. Did you play in any bands in your teens? Yes. Um, my first band was in school. Right through primary and high school, I tried to form a band and I had to try and teach people how to play instruments, like a guitar, a bass or something. Eventually, I got to the stage where I could actually get a band together and we called ourselves Cliché. Um, (laughs) And we were essentially just a Clash covers band, you know. Um, We played Clash songs, that was it. And that's how I learned, that's how I learned how to play guitar really better than just you know, the open chords. The guy I mentioned earlier on, Scott Walker, I met him just after I left school and we formed a band called Dr. Love. And we were trying to do epic 60s pop. We got into Burt Bacharach, Scott Walker and Tom Jones and Elvis. I'd loved Elvis at that point as well. Yeah, so how do you pull that off, get an orchestrated 60s epic sound? We had a, a really real tape machine we got a, a D50, Roland D50, which was the best thing you could use at the time to get string sounds. Recorded all that using his four track and we built up a backing track and we got two female backing singers, people we, we knew, and we went out and he played guitar and I sang and we did our first gig at La Air, which no longer exists. It's um, Fox Street and um, near, near the old 13th note. Oh, no, the first gig we played was in Lindsay Public Halls. And this guy, Martin Knox, who was a kind of bohemian artist kind of guy that we knew, used to disappear uh, with a gyro off around Europe and never come back for ages. He got up on stage with us and spray-painted art stuff on the wall as part of our set. And that was our first <laughs> gig. So that was the bands I was in when I was a teenager, yeah. That's pretty cool. To answer that question as well, I didn't really play in bands in my teens. Again, I was a bit of a latecomer to music as well. And I wouldn't say it was the most musical school I was at either. Mm-hmm. Most people were just into football or art or stuff. There wasn't really many. There was musicians, but the really good ones were at things like harp and violin and stuff like that. There was a couple of good drummers as well. And I had a, sh- a couple of short-lived bands. We didn't really have names or anything. We only really rehearsed. I remember one of my, a couple of my friends had a band called the Danish Pastries, which is a good name. Yeah. <laughs> well, my was kind of similar. That's why I had to try and teach people how to play things, to try and get a band together. It wasn't really until I was maybe in my late teens that I met people who were of the same kind of mind and wanted to do it. Mm. We didn't know how to get gigs and stuff. And no, neither did I. I didn't have a clue. I still don't really know how to do it. No, I, d- I still don't either, you know. Where I was from, I was from Dunblane. And nowadays, all the kids around, the, the toll booth in Stirling is just like the mm-hmm. gathering point. And they put on gigs for 
like under 18s and they have this specific place that you can go and they have different classes for them but none of that was really around when I was wee so I never got to meet kids from other schools that I might have done that with you're sort of just that bit far away from the big cities yeah well I was as well I was only like 20 minutes outside Glasgow but I still felt very remote it was just a village you know yeah. am I saying another number now another number I'll go for number three this time. Number three. Okay. If you could do a tribute band, what would it be and why? Wow. Yeah, that's a pretty good one. You would have to be fully invested in it and never get bored of the music and something you could do well. I don't know. I mean, the only person I remotely resemble in music is Bill Nelson from Bebop Deluxe. Uh-huh. I'd maybe have to keep the lockdown here going a little bit longer to get to that length. But I ask the thing though, does it have to be all about looks or is it more about music? Yeah, if I had to choose somebody whose music I would have to play every single night. The obvious one's the Beatles just because they've got so much music to pick from and I like every single song. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of people out there who'd be better at it than me, so I probably wouldn't get much work. Yeah, there was a Beatles tribute band, I can't remember what they're called, but they don't do the look or anything like that. They just play the music. They focus on doing it really, really well. Do you know who'd be a fun one that you don't really see many tribute acts of? I mean, I'm sure there are some out there, but I think I could do a decent job of being the piano player in that sort of late 60s, early 70s kinks. Oh, great. God's Children, that sort of thing, Percy. The... Yeah, just all that Village Green Preservation Society stuff. It had a lot of piano on it. Oh, that's a great one, yeah. There's yeah. quite a lot of the tunes around that era. Again, getting back to that sort of music hall style, they had that fun piano on it. I can't um, think of a, a Kinks tribute band, actually. There must be loads, but I can't think of any. I'm not seeing any or anything like that. That'd be a great no. one. Maybe down south there'd be more kind of down London way. Yeah. Yeah, my kind of secret desire, if you like, would be to do a Thin Lizzy tribute band. I'd love to be Phil Lynott because I, I just I love Thin Lizzy. I loved them when I was a kid. Great live band, saw them in the Apollo. The big question, of course, is, you know, well, I think the answer is no, but, you know, <laughs> would, you, would you black up? You know, and Obviously, the answer is no, because that would just be awful. But, but people do kind of try and do the look, don't they? I think I would have to just not do the look and just go, I don't look like him, but I could play the bass. I could do a decent job of the vocal, I think, because I've got a similar range. I would be great fun. I'd love that. I think that would be quite good fun as well. Thin Lizzy's one of those bands that I guess you and I you probably shouldn't really be into, given our other tastes, but I do like Thin Lizzy as well. Yeah. Well, it's funny because, like, you know, Stuart Murdoch chipped in on a thing I did on Facebook recently. He's a big fan, and he's mentioned them in songs as well. Again, somebody who you wouldn't expect necessarily the first thing you think of. They had such a great melodies in Lizzie, and Phil, Phil in it had, and his solo album's brilliant. The Corps covered one of his songs, the, the Old Town, which had a great sense of pop. The tribute thing, though, I mean, it would be so tempting just to get a studied wristband on, you know, and go, ah, you kind of need to when you get the mirrored bass go yeah <laughs> you would have to do it all that's what the crowd would want yeah I know I know I have written down a couple of tribute band names 
Wow. Um, you know how they're always kind of... A bit of a joke. Yeah, it's almost like they sort of talk themselves down a little bit. Uh-huh. Yeah, 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 they do. I don't know why I found this one so funny, but I thought if there was a Yeah, Yeah, Yes tribute band from England just called the Yes, Yes, Yeses. <laughs> Is that a real one? Do you make that one up? No, I just, I made it up. It might well be real, but I just thought <laughs> that has to be from England. That's a like really posh English band. Do a kind of posh version, a string quartet or something like that. That's a great start. I'd like to think of some for the next one, maybe. Maybe that's something I actually wanted to say. We invited people to contribute to the, the, the daft lyrics thing on Facebook. But if anybody wants to contribute some more daft lyrics that don't make any sense and are funny as a result, you can email us because we have an email address. Scottish Indie Music Podcast at gmail.com. And that's for people that might come across us on YouTube or anything like that who might not be on Facebook, for example. Email us. And if you've got any ideas about names for tribute bands, that could be a good one as well. So I think you've got one more question. I have a number to fire at you. So have I said number one this week? You've not. Who did you fancy growing up? Presumably somebody famous, yeah? You're talking? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's <got> no point. <laughs> yeah. Chances are I won't know them if they're not. <laughs> yes. Well, I know that one. It's an easy one. Lindsay Wagner, who played the bionic woman. All right. Who was my first major crush when I was a kid. Probably aged about six, seven, something like that. <laughs> what about musicians? First musician I had a crush on? Probably Box Fizz. When they came out and they did the sort of whole pulling their skirts off and all that when I was about probably 12. So it was just at the age when that kind of thing was starting to become quite appealing and exciting, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Probably, yeah. yeah. I had two that the first one was Keris Matthews from Catatonia. Oh, yeah. I mean, she's, she's really cool. Yeah. She's got a great voice as well. Like, totally distinctive voice. I think it's just because she looked cool. Because I remember thinking that about her and Brett Anderson from Suede. I almost thought they were on the same level of cool for, like, male and female. Yeah. And so if I had a man crush, it was Brett Anderson. But it, it was... Like Ken, Ken and Barbie kind of thing. Yeah. 90s indie Ken and Barbie. <laughs> I definitely had a man crush on Brett Anderson as well. I didn't ever become a massive Swed fan, but I remember seeing him on television. God, he's so good looking. <laughs> he's like, he's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> the other one for me was Bjork. Ah, yeah, yeah. That is really cool. Especially when you'd have been quite young when she came along. Yeah. I remember getting a bit slagged off for that because all my friends were into like the All Saints and Spice Girls and stuff. I had a bit of a thing for Bjork, yeah. And I, th- I think she still looks great. Yeah. I don't know how old she is now, but she's probably, she be in her kind of mid-50s maybe? Oh, older than that. Um, late, late 50s, I would say, because I'm in my early 50s. She's quite mm. older than me. She may not be, mind you. Yeah. Because they would have been out mid to late 80s, wouldn't they? The Sugar Cubes and then... So we both fancied Brett Anderson. We found some common ground there. We are the Metrosexual Podcast. Would you like to tell the listeners why we were delayed by two minutes at the start? 
<laughs> yeah, because I had to go and moisturise because I realised that I just looked way too hacky and old, next to you especially. So, <laughs> I was pre-moisturised for the show, so. So I'm down to one question left on my list, so I'll need to think of some more for next time. Uh, yeah, I'll need to replenish mine as well. Cool. Well, thanks again for watching. Thanks for listening. And yeah, I'll see you next time. And remember, Scottish Indie Music Podcast at gmail.com. If you want to contribute in any way, 